Hello on fuckers, sub fuckers, social fuckers, and fellow lunatics. Right now, as we speak, our crack team of researchers and writers, editors, and investigative reporters are hard at work to bring you several high-concept and mission-critical episodes that will turn this republic on its ear. It's literally just the three of us. For the uninitiated perspective on fuckers who are sampling us for the first time, here's the deal. This episode is what we lovingly refer to as a quickie. Now, normally we're performing a full cavity search on a single issue related to our so-called democracy. They're a bit longer, wonkier, and infuriating. So if this is your first roll in the hay with us, make sure you check out one of our normal shows, lest you think this is what we're all about. Now, the skinny on quickies is pretty straightforward. They're usually more timely than our regular episodes and are broken into three distinct pieces that are all somehow related. On our last one, we talked about the three white male archetypes of AOC critics. Before that, we fucked with three Democrats who are having a particularly hard time in the news cycle. And today, we're talking about the attempt to rehabilitate the image of three rather significant Republican figures, most notably the 43rd President of the United States. Should be fun. Now, before we begin, here's a quick rundown of upcoming episodes, though we reserve the right to switch up the order depending upon the cycle of the moon. We're going to talk about Cuba on the next full-fledged unfucking by examining the fortunes of this strange and beautiful island since the Cuban Revolution. Shortly after that, as promised, we're going to tackle the concept of conscious capitalism and expose some fundamental flaws of the concept and some positive aspects as well. Then, my dear unfuckers, we're really going for it. We're putting our nemesis squarely in our sights and taking aim at the granddaddy of all fuckers, Milton fucking Friedman. That's right, a big old feature on the Chicago School of Economics legacy over the past 50-some-odd years. Yeah, I wish I could help with that, but I'm going to be pretty busy punching myself in the face repeatedly. That's our soon-to-be former engineer, Manny, if you haven't met him. He'll come around. Anyway, at the end of the show, we have our customary show notes with listener shout-outs and some other information about our new line of unfucking coffee officially launching on June 15th. That's right. Your support of the show has made it possible for us to invest in a partnership with a native coffee roaster, so we're only weeks away from being able to ship organic, fair trade, native roasted coffee right to your doorstep. Three distinct blends, unfuck your morning, unfuck your afternoon, and a decaffeinated unfucking. The coffee is fucking delicious, and it's roasted by indigenous entrepreneurs on a reservation near us. More on that in show notes. Now, here's the viciously sexual setup question for today's show. What do a bush, a boner, and a mixture of lube and fecal matter have in common? Answer after this. When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to an unfucking quickie. And the answer to our question is, they're all Republicans. Okay, so the question was a little misleading, and we pride ourselves on accuracy, so it's actually pronounced Boehner, not Boner. In the midst of all this important work we're accomplishing together on Fuckers, it might seem odd to give an ounce of our valuable attention to such creatures of yesteryear. But I want you to remember back to our Reagan episode for a moment. Recall that we shredded the Gipper for a half hour or so to draw the very important conclusion and prediction that the Republican Party post-Trump would try to beatify Ronald Reagan and recreate the party as a whole in his image. Same forces are at play here. George W. Smoke-Em-Out Bush, John Chain-Smoking and Hard-Drinking Boehner, and Rick Fecal Matter Santorum have all been prominently featured in the news lately. 
Santorum has actually been the most consistent presence as the token Republican CNN commentator, you know, for balance. And he recently made headlines by claiming Native Americans essentially had no cultural impact on the United States. So you can imagine how I felt about that. And the other two Jamokes have been making the rounds on TV as well. Boehner's promoting a book about his time in Congress and making headlines by calling Ted Cruz the spawn of Satan. How fucking original and gutsy. And old W is promoting his book of really, really bad paintings. I mean, is there no one close to this guy that could be like, um, sir, you really, really, really shouldn't show these to anyone. I was re-watching some fawning corporate media interview with him, and he was touring a reporter around his Crawford ranch. It was just so fucking painful because she was asking questions of the former president as if his paintings of ordinary immigrants alongside portraits of Henry fucking Kissinger and Vladimir Putin held some sort of deep meaning. First of all, as though they were good. Are you trying to send a message on immigration to your party, sir? And he's like, (laughs) yeah. This is why people fucking loathe the media. And then again, he's so painfully awkward and smart stupid in a way that I actually wound up kind of nostalgic for the guy. And that's the problem. This is how awful the Republicans are now, by the way. The fact that these clowns are getting airtime because the rest of your standouts are Ted Cruz, insurrectionist Hawley, Mormon Mitt, Kevin McCarthy, Butthead Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lindsey Graham. Hey, did someone call my name? It should set off warning bells and alarms that it's time to put a stick of dynamite up the elephant's ass and just blow this shit up. Instead, they're going to try and rehabilitate these guys and reclaim the once proud heritage of the Reagan-Bush era. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Oh, W. His ineptitude and callousness seems so benign in retrospect after the Trump years, doesn't it? With time, it gets easier and easier to forget what a disaster the Bush presidency was in nearly every way imaginable. With the world behind us after 9-11, Bush's approval rating soared to a high of 90%, according to Gallup. By the end of his term, he exited with a 34% approval rating after embroiling the United States in two intractable conflicts and bringing the economy to the brink of complete and total collapse. Much of the media muscle memory tends now to reflect on his verbal gaps and missteps like mission accomplished. And it's all certainly valid. But the further back in the rear view his presidency is, the further removed we are from some of the fatal flaws he helped institutionalize. W inherited a rare budget surplus from Clinton, though this in and of itself is problematic. Nevertheless, like a child with a fresh mitt of candy from the dollar store, he promptly doled out whatever was in the till immediately upon taking office and set the country on a course of illiquidity. Then precisely at the time we theoretically needed it the most, he engaged in two massive multi-trillion dollar multi-year wars and plunged us deeper into the fiscal abyss. The Bush era also marks the beginning of the end of privacy. We employed mercenaries to fight dirty wars in multiple nations, and we hunted terrorists across the globe and killed countless civilians with drone strikes, which helped turn the public sentiment in the world against us in just a few short years. Several of his key advisors were swept up in perjury indictments. He praised his FEMA director for doing a heck of a job after the government's disastrous response to Hurricane Katrina. 
He built out Guantanamo and several covert dark sites around the world that oversaw torture programs. And of course, he was steadily attacking our civil liberties at home and massacring hundreds of thousands of civilians abroad. And he oversaw the complete collapse of the U.S. housing market and subsequent recession that took 10 full years to recover from. But hey, when all was said and done, he surprised Laura by taking up painting. By chance, I read Winston Churchill's essay, Painting as a Pastime, and it got me thinking about painting. And in essence, I said, if that old boy can paint, I can paint. And of course, we just love him for it. We're just far enough removed from the torture, the murder, the financial catastrophe, the blood and sacrifice, increase in inequality, to have a little fun on late night shows. I thought it would be fun if we do a little art demonstration here on the show. Sure. Because there's nothing more interesting on television than watching people draw. And when we come back, we'll grab some pet. In fact, let's grab them now and we'll get started and maybe we'll draw each other, okay? <laughs> And if that's not enough, and since 24-hour news cycles have time to fill and kill, we even have time to critique the former president's work and offer advice on national television. If I could give him one counsel, I'd say, don't rely so much on the photograph, Mr. Bush. Look at the photograph, take that as a starting point, and then just paint more with your imagination, and the backgrounds could have stuff too. Now, not to be outdone, next we sidle up to the bar and throw one back with the throwback himself. Good old John Boner. Uh, Boehner. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. When you're drinking, when you're drinking, the show looks good to you. Hey, Pally, how did all these people get into my room? Our next victim is a ring-a-ding-ding, fine how-do-you-do, swingin' dick cool cat, John Boehner. Such a class act. So classy, in fact, here's President Obama talking about John's resignation. John Boehner's a good man. He is a patriot. He cares deeply about the House, an institution in which he's served for a long time. He cares about his constituents. Uh, and he cares about America. Wow, awfully nice words for a man who steadfastly blocked your agenda during his time as Speaker of the House. Say, Johnny, what do you think about the former president? Uh, yeah, not quite my cup of tea, uh, but we got along well. Ouch. Yep, as hard as Obama tried to win the Speaker over, praising this son of a barkeep for his dedication and work ethic and bending to his every government shutdown whim, Boehner reflects on his tenure by blaming the upstarts in his caucus for holding him hostage. What could I do, he's opined on every show that will listen while he promotes his book. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? The only saving grace for this punch-colored shorts-wearing drunk is that as soon as the book bullshit blows over, he'll return to being a footnote in history. A man who came into his own well past his prime as the country was moving past men like him who believed smoky backroom dealings and promulgation of the patriarchal status quo was the only endgame that mattered. Now, the rap on Boehner, who was once chastised for literally handing out lobbyist checks to his fellow caucus members in the House, true fucking story, was that he was in the pocket of big business, especially the big banks and his beloved tobacco lobby. It's a charge he always denied. Of course, denial ain't just a river in Egypt, pally. After attending a meeting on the financial crisis, he liquidated holdings. In 2018, he accepted a position on the Reynolds board. And after upholding harsh drug laws his entire legislative career, he recently joined the board of a cannabis company. 
Boehner was a man made for yesterday. Drinking, smoking, golf shorts wearing, tan old cranky fuck. What I love about the arc of his career is that he was supposed to truly enjoy his spoils as speaker. And the great irony of John Boehner is that he himself fell victim to the young shits that took over in the Tea Party haze. You see, Boehner was part of the young caucus of Gingrich shitheads, the infamous Gang of Seven, that paved the way for a new breed of Republicans like the trio of McCarthy, Cantor, and Ryan. And we covered these assholes in a previous episode. You see, it was the Gang of Seven that truly radicalized the Republican Party under the cover of something they called the Contract for America. Remember that? Honestly, unfuckers, this so-called contract probably deserves its own unfucking. Hmm, I'll make a note of it. The contract was the legislative playbook of the Heritage Foundation, which was finding ways to finally work conservative ideology of cutting taxes and welfare programs and loosening regulations on big business. It resulted in a series of acts with names like American Dream, National Security, Common Sense. But they were all intended to chip away at the social and economic fabric that undergirded the working class and poorest Americans by poverty shaming and promoting the will of industry and the theories of the Heritage Foundation, which was just a policy think tank extension of the evil and Machiavellian forces at play under the guidance of, here it comes, you know who unfuckers, Milton fucking Friedman. And when he finally took over his dream job of House Speaker, he spent most of his time blocking the Obama agenda, blaming the Senate for not doing its job and failing to control the young guns that were ironically fashioned in his likeness. The only thing he managed to shepherd along during his time as Speaker were repeated attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare is hurting our economy. Uh, it's hurting middle-class families. Uh, and it's hurting uh, the ability for employers to create more jobs. From the moment he took the gavel until his unceremonious retirement, Boehner oversaw more than 50 separate House measures and bills to either chip away at the ACA, defund certain parts of it, or simply repeal it. In other words, his legacy as a representative was part of the gang that is now synonymous with the end of any sense of collegiality in Congress, and his legacy of Speaker was zero success in the passage of important legislation, but more than 50 failed attempts to take away health care for millions of Americans. Anyway, as Boehner drinks himself into a stupor and finally fades away, we come to the last of our trio of fuckheads seeking media salvation and rehabilitation. Personally, while he might be the least consequential of the three, I think we've saved the best for last. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, if, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. So this clip is pretty stupid in its own right. That's former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum talking about the birth of the United States and how the indigenous people had no impact on American culture. And he paid the price for it by being shamed by pretty much everyone. It wasn't a blank slate, you idiot. There was a thriving native culture here that we attempted to eliminate through genocide. And I'm gonna guess that the Rickster somehow missed the entire Southwest in his travels, has never seen the game of lacrosse, or eaten any of the crops natives taught the starving morons who landed here to plant. I actually think the media overreacted to his comment because I know what he was driving at. He was actually talking authentically as a conqueror. And frankly, it's kind of refreshing in its honesty. He was basically saying, we came, we saw, we kicked ass, and brought our own idea of what the world should be to their land. Sorry, not sorry. 
And in this, he's kind of right. But the media are lazy and honed in on just this clip. My bigger issue is with this line of thinking. And so they came here mostly from Europe and they set up a country that was based on Judeo-Christian principles. When I say Judeo-Christian, the Mosaic laws, 10 commandments, and the teachings of Jesus Christ, the morale, the morals and, and teachings of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what our founding documents are based upon. Here are just a few fun facts about fecal lubricant guy. Oh, and if you still don't know what the fuck I'm talking about with this nickname, we'll get there. If you do know, then you know just how fucking funny this really is. Anyway, yes, the original settlers were fleeing religious persecution. But the founders, the ones he's really talking about, made it abundantly clear, as we've covered before, that this nation be free of any religious influence in governance. The exact opposite of what he's proclaiming here. In fact, and you can look this shit up, our founding documents more closely resemble the founding principles of the Haudenosaunee, the principles that bound together the six nations of the Iroquois, than the fucking Bible. There's so much about this that oozes right-wing fundamentalist Christian exceptionalism stupidity. But alas, in terms of where Fecal Lube Guy stands in historical context, it might be difficult for even those who remember the 2012 campaign between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama that Romney wasn't always the odds-on favorite. In the beginning, Santorum was actually the frontrunner. What's it like to be the Republican frontrunner? What does it feel like? For Rick Santorum, the answer might very well be painful. And he got there for a brief time on this kind of platform. For the record, Santorum believes marriage should be between a man and a woman only. Why? Because I believe we are made that way. Santorum also opposes abortion, including in cases of rape. And he's spoken of the dangers of contraception or birth control as, quote, a license to do things in a sexual realm that is counter to how things are supposed to be. Furthermore, my man went to Penn State and then went on to get his MBA and a law degree, but showed a great disdain for the intellectual elite. President Obama once said he wants everybody in America to go to college. What a snob. And his racism was always right there, just below the surface. Here's a fun slip up when addressing a bunch of white people about Medicaid expansion. That's what the bottom line is. I don't want to, to make black people's lives better by giving them somebody else's money. I want to give them the opportunity to go out and earn the money and provide for themselves and their families. So now he's on CNN as a commentator, much in the way they used to punt around Alan Combs on Fox News. See, we have a liberal guy. Now watch me gut him like a tauntaun on live television night after night. The same thing with Santorum, except the liberals are so afraid to face the shameless attempts at being balanced that they actually started to rehabilitate this douche nozzle in the public eye as something of a respectable figure instead of the right-wing evangelical Christian racist fucknipple that he is and always has been. Am I forgetting anything? Oh, yes. <laughs> the meaning of his name. Well... During his ascendancy as a presidential candidate, his anti-LGBTQIA stance was widely known and he was rather unapologetic about it. Santorum was blatantly courting the evangelical vote and gaining way more traction than most people gave him credit for. So cultural and political columnist Dan Savage, author of syndicated column Savage Love and founder of the It Gets Better campaign, started a movement to create an urban dictionary slang meaning for the word Santorum. Now, side note, Savage is a controversial figure who has been accused of transphobic comments in the past, but this too is a different story. 
Anyway, after crowdsourcing the effort, he ultimately settled on the following definition for the word Santorum. <clears throat> Santorum, the frothy mixture of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. To this day, if you Google Santorum, the first several results that appear will offer you this definition. Internet 1, Santorum 0. So what's the takeaway here? Well, because unfuckers are so fucking smart and also maintain a healthy sense of humor, I'll submit the following query from a listener I love who goes by Jay Boogers. JB emailed us with this question. In the most recent two episodes, Corporate Irresponsibility and the Assange Problem, you unrelentingly highlight the continued failings of our, quote, independent press. It leaves me struggling with the question of just when and how exactly we ended up with an impotent press that not only leaves us uninformed, but operates as propagandists. It's the right question to help us frame our thoughts around this quickie. Why would you have someone as toxic and misguided as Ricky Fecal Lube as a permanent paid host on your network? Why would you patronize a former president to ask him about his fucking bad childlike artwork instead of taking the opportunity to grill him about the dreadful legacy of his squandered presidency or clear war crimes? Why would talk show hosts so gleefully pal around with a relic like Boehner who had a front row seat to so much history that has contributed to the divide in this nation? Without Boehner and Gingrich's posses, we don't have the divisions we have today. They quite literally and deliberately invented it as we covered and yet he makes several appearances on talk shows to talk about how the country is so divided now without one single host or reporter pressing him about his involvement in the creation of it. When Donald Trump called the press the enemy of the people, he was dangerously hearkening back to a fascist line of propagandist thinking. But it reminds me of when people ask me whether I liked the Obama administration or not. I typically reply with, I dislike the Obama years as much as you, but probably for different reasons. See, I hold a level of disdain for the press today, but for different reasons than a miscreant like Trump or his supporters. Mine is more of a grand disappointment at the abrogation of responsibility when it suits them. People wonder why purists like Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras, or Matt Taibbi can't function inside an organized press system, but it really shouldn't be a surprise. It's why I root for the David Sirotas or the Abby Martins of the world who have the courage to challenge the corporate narrative in such a way that it often even hurts their careers. In this era of so-called cancel culture, it seems so curious how corporate media will help rehabilitate figures like our trio simply because they represent a time before Trump. Because that's the only rational explanation for this. Trump was such an affront to our self-image and concept of decency that we'll grasp at anything from a time before him. In doing so, we're dangerously softening the history of what men like these have done to tear apart the fabric of our nation. Bush is funny and self-deprecating. Boehner's a knock-around guy who likes to drink and smoke. Santorum is just an aw-shucks-milk-toast Christian guy in a bad sweater. So let's hear what they have to say about how terrible Donald Trump was. No. No, no, no. These guys have to take responsibility for where we are. Trump didn't appear out of the ether, and he's still not going anywhere. It was the actions of these rather horrific figures that allowed for someone like Trump to even exist. Here endeth the quickie. And the lesson for today, Google Santorum, hashtag FMF, Bush is a war criminal. On to show notes. So I promised you a bit of an explanation about our coffee plan. So very briefly, here's the deal. Our top downloaded episode so far is Culture Cancel about the plight of indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada. 
And you heard me speak about my buddy John Kane of Let's Talk Native, who was a friend and collaborator. And I mentioned on the Culture Cancel show that one of my beats in a former life was covering tribal affairs in New York. Well, one of my good friends also happens to be the chief of the Uncachog people on a reservation called Puspatuck. He's an amazing guy, and he's been in the coffee roasting business for 15 years. So we got to talking, and we decided on a pretty cool way to kill two birds with one stone. Now, it's just a metaphor. No animals are harmed in the production of Unfucking the Republic. We're launching our own line of premium coffee with three distinct blends to begin. The new site and store will be live in June, and the first orders will be taken on June 15th. Now, when the site is live, it'll explain everything about this process and become the new home of Unfucking the Republic, so stay tuned for that. The best part of this whole thing is that beyond supporting our ability to keep producing this show at a high level, it goes back to the community, and it'll assist in their entrepreneurial economic development efforts. If we do this right, Unfuckers, they'll be able to add equipment and hire more members of the reservation. I couldn't be more proud of the affiliation and more humbled by your support thus far. It's because of you and your donations, ironically using the Buy Us Coffee link on unftrpod.com, that we were able to start this up. So on that note, a quick rundown of thanks for recent support, and we answer a few outstanding questions along the way. No book love or pod love on this quickie, as we're saving it for our next full episode. So, thank you to the following people. First off, Michelle, who found us via David Pakman and bought us five coffees. And loved the Ayn Rand episode saying that we said succinctly and filthily all of the things that she's wanted to say to various Randroids in her life. Daniel A., a former gang member and ex-con, thanked us for keeping shit real and purchased five coffees. Robert bought us a coffee and said, great podcast. Corey S. bought us 10 coffees and said we're his favorite political show. And of course, fuck Milton Friedman. Tristan... Here's a long one. Hang on. Tristan bought us 10 coffees and said, Max, you've done such a terrific job that you kind of fucked me over. Other podcasts don't do it for me anymore, and I have to sit and wait patiently every week for a new UNFTR to drop. One thing has been bothering me. I'm starting to feel hopeless for the future. As a college student, the future of this country looks bleak. What are some of the things I can do to move the needle in the right direction? Also, hashtag FMF. Okay, Tristan, this is an excellent concept that you brought up, and it reminds me of a conversation that I had with a listener named Cass from Carolina early on. The first thing is that language is important. Context is important. Our understanding of how we got to this point is massively important because of the overwhelming propaganda that has been thrown at us and thrust down our throats for literally 50 years. And so what we're doing is we're stitching together a whole bunch of episodes, a lot of content to help formulate the idea and understanding of how we arrived at this place, because you know we have collective amnesia. And it takes a shared language and understanding in order to build a better future. And remember this, the things that they did to us as citizens and and as a nation can be undone if we know what they are and how they built them. But if we just look at them and think that it's impossible for us to do it, then we'll never make any progress. So it begins with understanding, creating a shared language, and then we can begin to construct a new reality around this shared knowledge and make a better tomorrow. So I think that's what we're doing most. We oftentimes try to put in some support for organizations or other books to read or other podcasts to get involved with, uh, support for journalists that are doing really great jobs out there. So we try to infuse each episode with a little bit more than just, hey, you should understand this thing. So we'll do it together. Keep listening to the show and keep sending in your feedback. We appreciate it. Now, Derek R. bought us 10 coffees, said outstanding work is always 
and said your recent discussion about Assange challenged my own personal feelings on the subject. Now, we got a lot of that, and I appreciate everybody reaching out, especially on social media about the Assange issue. It was very gratifying. Jonathan L., three coffees and a shout out to Jay and Amanda at Best of the Left. Yes, that is deserved. Please support Jay and Amanda's work at Best of the Left. They are top of the top. Stephanie bought five coffees and said your voice is needed. Now, my dear Stephanie, let's peek behind the veil here for a moment. This isn't necessary because you're doing the work, because I know who you are, and you're really creating true change in the world. Love the thought of being together on your walks, even though we're apart. Love you very much, and thank you. El Bacho! El Bacho! Max, your piece on Assange made me rethink some things F. MF. Now, you know I love saying El Bacho, and I think that's why you're just buying coffees, but you've bought enough. That's it now. El Bacho, you're cut off from supporting us until we launch Coffee Brand, and then you're welcome to buy the coffee as much as you want. Once again, you've come through with the support, and it's really humbling, my friend. I love you for it. So let's say your name one more time. El Bacho! Charles bought us a coffee and said, special thank you to Best of the Left. I agree. Ray bought us four coffees, said best show ever. John D bought us 10 coffees, said I just started listening after the Times piece, and I have to say that every episode has been fucking great. And Charlie C rounding us out with three coffees. Now, a bit about Charlie on fuckers, without revealing too much, yet another person doing the real work in the world for all of us. So no, thank you, Charlie C. Over on the Facebooks, I just want to thank Debbie L for really, really holding it down over there. She said recently, brilliant. How is it possible to love a podcast this much? It's not. I wait for the ball to drop. I'm sorry. Terribly cynical of me. Debbie L, because of this and because of your support and everybody else here, I am never, ever going to drop the ball. She also went on to say, I don't know if anybody's picked up on your comment. Hint, but I have. I want it. Do an episode, if not a series, about journalism's role, culpability, and the aggressive maintenance of the status quo. Hmm, Debbie, all of this. All of this and in due course. Mike Arge also joined the conversation over at the Facebooks and said, Hey guys, just want to thank you for the amazing work. Mike R came to us from David Pakman. Thank you, David, for sending him our way. On Instagram, Starlotti, holding it down. Blaine Durth and Darren Corston found us on Twitter from the Assange episodes and gave us their seal of approval. Hey, Welcome to the unfucking fight. And of course, P. Slippery. You know I like saying P. Slippery as much as I like saying J. Boogers. P. Slippery said, sorry if you've answered this already, but are you guys going to be launching a Patreon? I would absolutely pay for your content to keep it coming. I know there's coffee, but I would prefer an automatic payment system like Patreon. Fuck Milton Friedman. Uh, hey, P. Slippery. So we are going to launch an initiative that will allow people to subscribe if they don't want to buy coffee and drink coffee. You'll be able to give us donations on a consistent basis. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, stay tuned because as of June 15th, the whole thing should switch. On Substack, we continue to load up with new subfuckers who are joining us at Substack to access essays and sources that we frame the episodes around. So many new subfuckers. In fact, that we now appear on the homepage, albeit pretty far down. That's surprising and pretty fucking amazing. So keep it up and come on over. Membership on Substack will always be free. And this is where we'll be able to send out discount codes when we launch the coffee and other content that isn't quite fit for a pod. Lastly, Stan on email. Max, love the economic corporate episodes. My favorite hobby, socio-political behavioral economy. I love it. Uh, Stan, thanks for uh, keeping in touch with us. We really appreciate it. And to all of you unfuckers and subfuckers, we hope you have a great week. Remember to tune in next week when we do our Cuba episode and then stay tuned for the big one on Uncle Milty himself. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. AK-47.
a.k.a. M. Slippery. Wait. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. This show is hosted by John Wick's lesser-known brother and distributed by Elon Musk's Lies. Check out our book recommendations and support local bookstores by visiting bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRpod at Gmail or connect with us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, or at unftr.substack.com to keep the conversation going.